Welcome to Healthcare Upside Down with your host, Dr. Nick Vanterhaven, and brought to you by ECG Management Consultants. You can learn more about the show on the program's page at healthcarenowradio.com or on our blog at ecgmc.com slash hud. The U.S. spends more on healthcare per capita than any other country on the planet. So why don't we have superior outcomes? Why haven't the principles of capitalism prevailed? And why do American consumers have so much trouble accessing and paying for healthcare? Each week, Healthcare Upside Down will dive into these and other issues with ECG principal, Dr. Nick, and guest panelists as they discuss the upsides and downsides of healthcare in the U.S. and how to make the system work for everyone. And we end with your better pill to swallow, the conclusion to today's episode with insights on challenges and changes that improve healthcare. Now here's your host, Dr. Nick. Before the advent of social media and then thousands of channels of entertainment on television, and to be clear, I'm using the term entertainment begrudgingly in this case of the many TV channels, but that's another story. We were all kept on the edge of our seats in the cinema or in the movies. Movies that came with iconic scenes and lines that became part of our combined vocabulary and shared experience. If you were lucky to have watched the movie Jaws in the movies back in 1975, you'll remember the suspense, the music, and perhaps the iconic line when the main character, Brody, played by Roy Schreider, is chumming the water and turns his head just in time to see a gargantuan great white shark off the stern of the boat. He's dumbfounded and seen stepping back slowly towards Quint, the brusque sea captain, to tell him, you're going to need a bigger boat. That's how it is in mental health treatment here in the United States and indeed around the world. The most recent data on mental health incidents in the U.S. tells a very depressing story. That particular pun is intentional. A large multi-year study led by researchers at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, based on data from 2016 to 2019, found overall 21%, or one in five children in the United States aged 3 to 17, have one or more common mental, emotional and behavioural health conditions being assessed. The prevalence of mental health problems across US children ranged from about 15 to 60%. So in some instances, as high as three in five children in some areas. These findings are published as the U.S. and other countries face a crisis in children's mental health exacerbated by the pandemic. The study appears online in the January 2022 issue of Children and Adolescent Psychiatry Clinics of North America. Parents go through enormous trials and tribulations as they struggle to access the right resources for their children only to discover that when they really need help and support, there is either none, or if there is anything available, it can be weeks or months before you can get access to it. Any parent will tell you these timelines don't work, and what was bad before is far, far worse post-pandemic, with more people suffering problems and increasing burnout and lack of available resources and staff. How do we create more resources and provide better access? Join me on the Healthcare Upside Down show as I talk with Dr. Henry Sachs, who's the president of Bradley Hospital, and Ellen Halsworth. She's the director of Bradley Reach. Hi, Ellen. Hi, Henry. Welcome to the show. 
Hi, Nick. Great to be here. Yes, Nick. Thanks for having us. It's great. So we're talking mental health awareness. Uh, it's the Mental Health Awareness Month. Most people know I'm not a big fan of mental as a, a term. We'll talk brain health, but essentially huge challenge, one that's been just continuing to explode as a problem for our society. And here you are essentially faced with that challenge, but you seem to have found a little bit of a pathway that is maybe um, helping resolve some of the resource issues. Tell us about that. So yes, Nick, uh, you know, really over the last 12 to 14 years, the, um, the rate of mental health issues uh, in our children and our youth had just been exploding. Even before the pandemic, there was over 100% increase in the number of people, uh, number of children, adolescents presenting in emergency rooms who were suicidal um, or engaged in suicide behaviors who needed hospitalization. And the pandemic has only put that entire issue on steroids. So we've been around as a hospital for 90, over 90 years at this point, And we've had the unique opportunity as the first child psychiatric hospital in the country to build a continuum of care that really didn't ex doesn't exist at other places. Not only do we have inpatient levels of care and outpatient, but we have the whole middle continuum of residential services, schools, um, partial hospital programs, six hour programs for children, um, for five days a week or intensive outpatient programs, which are three hour programs, group therapy, individual and family therapy programs that are very intense. We've had these for years. It's been very successful for us, but um, we were sort of limited. We're in Rhode Island and people had to travel to us and people came from as far away as the Philippines or the or Columbia or Columbia to come to see us. But that's a long trip and only a few people can make those, make those kind of challenges, make those kind of trips. So we had the opportunity when the pandemic hit to really look at seeing what we could do virtually. And to our surprise, our partial programs, our IOP programs, especially for adolescents, um, actually worked very well virtually. We were able to take care of kids who were just as ill. We had evidence that the outcomes were just as good. So this has been our opportunity now to expand beyond the Rhode Island region or have, not have people travel to us, but bring our services to them. And there really isn't too many other people out there doing that at this point. Ellen, you're managing this from a day-to-day -day perspective. And, you know, I, I, I've got to ask, I mean, as I think about virtualization and particularly with children, you know, we looked at the school setting and, you know, the virtualization of school didn't go so well, particularly across, you know, different age groups. There's a part of me that was, is surprised to hear that this works. What was your experience and how did that go? I think that's absolutely right. I know a lot of people um, had negative experiences of school virtually. And as one of the barriers we face is that I think um, hopefully as the pandemic recedes in people's memories, people's memories of virtual school will also recede. But we hear over and over again from families in the program that they didn't think virtual would work, that um, it would, they, that virtual school had, had been difficult for them in lots of ways. Um, but that we hear that actually they were surprised by how well it worked from both teenagers and their families, that teenagers say they were able to build really strong bonds with the care team and with each other virtually, um, and that that was a huge advantage. They said they felt comfortable sharing information virtually, and, and in some ways that's less daunting, particularly for anxious teenagers than an in-person environment. And the other big advantage is that, um, as Henry was just saying, um, to have your child participate in an in-person partial hospitalization program, you have to drive them to hospital every single day and drive to hospital to attend family therapy twice a week, which is a really 
intensive commitment and excludes a lot of people from accessing care. Um, but virtual means that parents can be part of their kids' treatment if they're at home for some of the day with the kids. And also they can join family therapy sessions virtually from parents join sometimes from their car in the parking lot at work. Parents can join from different locations. And it really, we're a huge part of our treatment philosophy is, is family focused and family oriented. And it really helps with that side of things. So it, it sounds a little bit like um, the, the fact that it's everybody participating and that virtualization facilitated that in a way that perhaps wasn't the case with the sort of school instance where, you know, it was almost this one to one or, you know, one to many kind of group approach. Was that part of it? Is this one of the silver linings that we can extract out of the pandemic uh, debacle that we all had to experience? Absolutely. I think I think it, it really levels the playing field for participation in something like this. That's one of the things that really excited us when we looked at data from the first phase of going virtual was that we, we were seeing kids in the program who we felt like we would have seen in an in-person program. And I think the thing we're all about is increasing access to quality care. Um, the other, other huge piece of silver lining is that as we're expanding in new states, we've just opened in Florida. We're serving um, the community health center that we partner with in Florida is based in an area where the behavioral work, but behavioral health workforce is really um, uh, not where it needs to be. Um, they have very few psychiatrists, very few psychologists, and we are able to hire providers anywhere in the country for Bradley Reach. So we have psychologists in Texas and in Baltimore, and in Virginia and psychiatrists in New York and Pittsburgh and um, Arizona. And they're we're bringing them to these kids in, a, in an area that doesn't have psychiatrists to, to a large extent and specialist psychiatrists. I think that's, that's hugely exciting in opening up access to care. So Henry, you've been at this for a long time, I suspect. You're sort of knee deep in actual um, therapy and treatments and, you know, watch this. You've watched the sort of I don't want to call it a decline, that's maybe unfair, but certainly a, a, a challenge that we faced as a society in delivering these. And one of the things that, you know, is is very apparent in this country, in the United States, is this sort of arbitrary limitation of licensure. The pandemic opened the door for this, but we've seen the the, you know, some element of reversal that door's been opened. You're demonstrating the value. How are you approaching this? Because you're clearly having some success to be able to expand this. Well, I mean, we've basically been on the assumption that at some point, the some of the advances that we saw with the pandemic, some of the you know uh, medical the uh, medical emergency sort of status would be taken away in this process. The public health emergency status would go away. And so we have basically followed the rules of every state as we've gone and gone through their licensing process. And it's labor, it, there's a lot, there's been a lot learned in that process, you know, things that could have gone a little bit more smoothly. It's far from as smooth as it should be, but we have been able to uh, build that long-term sustainability regardless of what the federal government does with this and or the state governments do with this, in fact. And in addition, we've also, been able to, because we've partnered with different entities, is to get the contracting, the insurance contract. It's not only the licensing part, but it's also that insurance contracting to, so that people um, can get access their own benefits to get our services, which we've been very successful with in a, you know, trial and error sort of method over time. Right. So you, you've 
architected this to sort of take account of potential future changes, I think we recognize the sort of rarity value of these highly skilled professionals that I, I want to say in increasing demand, we just fairly recently had the match. I, I don't know that the match has changed in terms of resources. So you're still working with rare resources. How are you bringing more folks to bear? Are you able to squeeze more out of them in terms of this because of the, the capabilities that you've built? Well, you know, Nick, I, I see child behavioral health as an incredibly valuable resource, an incredibly mm -hmm. scarce one, and uh, have a, a strong um, response to the idea of wasting any, any of that resource. We need to maximize that service. And I think what this service does really is to try to take the pressure off emergency rooms and inpatient settings. It's that level of intensity that the reality is most of the country doesn't have. Most people don't have the opportunity or access to this. Bring this in, in place allows those who really need to be in inpatient levels of care to be there, trying to make emergency rooms more efficient, try to avoid kids from coming in the emergency room. So it's just that taking resources and putting them at levels of care that kids are really demonstrating right now. There was this big gap between a child who needs regular outpatient services and a child who has to be on an inpatient service. And we're trying to close that gap and have more kids get that level of care where they live, where they are, as opposed to the um, not either getting no services or having to go to the very intensive inpatient care. So, Ellen, as you've constructed this, I think about this, you know, from a, a, a just a logistical challenge. It, it feels like that's a, a an enormous hill to climb in each of those settings. How have you approached this to sort of make it as easy as possible? Because clearly it is because you're attracting and you're, you're being successful, not just locally, but now in a, a broader scale. But at the same time, I, I'm listening to this going, well, there's there's a number of barriers that you must be overcoming on behalf of those people desperate for these services. I think that's where the local partnership model that is really, as Henry was saying, at the core of REACH is so important, because as you were saying, each state has got such a different um, map of telehealth regulation and licensure and Medicaid regulation and and Pay and payer mix too. And our local partners in Florida, for example, have been really helpful in helping us navigate that. They have their relationships with payers. So they've been helpful in making the case to payers that this is a helpful service um, that they should reimburse for. Um, and also helping us navigate different state-based policies. Um, and I think also that local partnership in the ground is going to become increasingly important. Um, as Henry was saying, the end of the public health emergency has brought some challenges for, for all telehealth providers, including DEA prescription controlled substances, which we do relatively frequently for um, uh, ADHD. Um, and the I think because we're not purely telehealth, because we have local partners in the ground, they were able to help us navigate that and provide in-person evaluation as needed. As, as you think about the resources, is, is there potentially a, a more attractive model for the skilled resources that we're talking about here to come into this kind of a practice? I mean, I'm sure, like many of the clinicians that we see throughout the country and other specialties, they're burnt out, I would imagine. Is, is this a better model? Is it providing a more uh, a, a better balance in terms of work life? I think there are huge advantages from a provider point of view, because I think doing 
working at home, but I think can, can help with burnout and can provide more flexibility. And but I think doing outpatient from home all day, every day can be quite lonely and there's a lack of professional development somehow. But I think our team based model means that um, our providers are working in highly skilled multidisciplinary teams and they're learning from one another and getting that kind of team spirit and camaraderie that a lot we look for in, in jobs so often. Uh, so I, I feel like from, from a provider point of view, this really does offer the best of both in many ways. Henry? Yes, I, you know. My biggest challenge right now is I have more physicians who want to come work with me than I have programs set up yet, which is, and in child psychiatry, we are talking about they're almost unicorns to start with. That's really pretty remarkable. And what we see, to Ellen's point, is we've had a lot of child psychiatrists who kind of gone the virtual route, doing a lot of individual medical evaluations and uh, individual therapy, working for you know various agencies doing that. And I think they do get burned out by that. And they're incredibly excited about the idea of being part of a team again and reconnecting professionally with you know the interdisciplinary model that we use psychologists social workers nursing um and uh, and mental health workers so that people are you know enthusiastic and wanting to come do this so i think it is um it recharges some people gets them involved i think it allows us to maintain a high quality of this, the service we're doing we're taking this very seriously. We're not, you know, just cookie cuttering this out. We're, we're we're making sure that we maintain a high quality service, and these people are very enthusiastic about doing it. So I'm I'm encouraged by that actually at the moment. I I, I mean that's got to be a rarefied position to be in, where you've got folks actually lining up. It's a testament to the service delivery, but more importantly, the individuals that are delivering that service. Because you know you can't patients don't just get care without sort of taking care of the actual individuals and clearly you've managed to find the right balance between this sort of virtualization and bringing the teams together that that's a pretty narrow line in my mind there's got to be something special what's the secret source in this that's allowing you to do this um i, th I think part of it is many years of experience um having a Number one, I think having a reputation that people know we provide good quality care. You know, we're associated with Brown University. We have our academic affiliation. We do research, so our outcomes are measurable in, in what we're doing, and it allow and it allows people to have some faith when they come to talk to us. And then when they meet the team, they meet a group that's been doing this before. We 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 when they initially come, we integrate them into teams that have already been established. They understand the method of how we do this. They see. Um, the success, they see the camaraderie, as, as, as Ella mentioned about the team, and they are relatively easily sold on this. Um, and, and, and then they become our, our strongest advocates, are these people. The, the, the newer people we've hired become our, our, our best recruiting tool because they talk to the people we're interested in and uh, their enthusiasm couldn't be uh, greater, actually. And, you know, in terms of the delivery, Alan, you've probably got to be excited by the fact that, you know, in this particular instance, it sounds like when somebody calls, there's actually resources available in these particular instances that you're delivering to those parents in this particular case, although ultimately it's the child, but the parents are the ones that are sort of guiding this. And, you know, the majority of the experience has been, yeah, sure, we've got services, but wait six to eight weeks. You're able to do this and set this up. 
as you look to the future, where do you see this going? What What's missing and what do you need? Great question. Uh, we'd like to expand more nationally. We're, we're operating in three New England states, Rhode Island, Connecticut and Massachusetts. We've opened in Florida this year. We're having conversations in several other states right now. Um, we're hoping to open more teams elsewhere in the country by the end of this year. And that's hopefully that's only the beginning. Um, I think uh, we would like people to really understand the value of this level of care, partial hospitalization, which is six hours a day of intensive treatment, including individual therapy, family therapy, and group activities, and group therapy, and intensive outpatient programs, which is three hours a day of the same kind of ther therapy. Uh, we'd like to, people to understand the value of this um, from a payment reimbursement point of view and keeping kids out of um, inpatient hospitalization and the ED and also um, from a family point of view too that it's better for kids and better families if, if kids can stay home if possible so that's really important. So clearly a direction here that says we, we, we provide this virtual access we don't necessarily unless there's good clinical reason want to admit these children in we can provide effective services I think you've demonstrated or uh, talked about some of the research and the demonstrable outcomes of all of this. Henry, as, as you think about this going forward, what do you need to expand this? I mean, I, I've got to say, I'm listening to this going, well, I want to see this across the whole of the United States. I mean, this is something that we all want, we all need. What What's missing for you? I think it's funny, our, probably our biggest challenge at times is having other entities that are so resource deprived understand what this could actually bring to their to their continuum of care. Sometimes people are so locked into what they've done from day to day that to sit there and say, boy, this is an opportunity to expand a, a service um, is almost, uh, you have to do a lot of education. So it slows down the conversation sometimes. Uh, but I, But I think that once we get over that and we can start to show the success, I think we can move forward. And then, of course, even though we're having success with people wanting to join us, there's still going to be recruitment challenges as we go forward. I mean, the, the workforce that we that's out there is just not adequate to the needs of the day. And this is helpful. It has kids, I think, in better the better levels of care that have, I, bet, I think, longer term out, positive outcomes and inpatient level of care might have. But... Um, it's still going to be an ongoing challenge and it's going to take years to meet the ability workforce that we need for all the levels of care that we have. And we won't be an exception to that. So I, there's no rapid fix to the match problem, but it, it, it strikes me that potentially getting that message out into earlier phases and not just with, you know, the physicians, but also the broader community who I imagine, you know, there's some turn off as they look at this with massive burnout, huge numbers of people, you know, perhaps there's a component to this that requires going back to the educational points and demonstrating this. Is there enough visibility that you're showing in our educational communities? And if not, how do we give them more? How do they, we allow for them to see more of what you're doing and the success that you've got? Yes. I, I don't think that there ha is enough educational experience out there because most, whether it's in the health, the medical profession, psychology, or college, university areas, I think that there are continued challenges to, to get an exposure to what people can see. Or people see the problems, 
They don't necessarily see healthy solutions. I think there's opportunities to do that on several different levels. Um, and I think it's going to take a national effort to do that over time. Alan, Henry, thanks for joining me on the show. Thanks. Nick, thanks for having us. The good news is we need a bigger boat. The even better news is there is a bigger boat and a plan and a program that's working and delivering clinically validated care that's effective and offering real relief to the stretched services in mental health. Solutions that not only deliver value and care to the patients, but importantly also provide improvements to the working circumstances of the already burnt out professionals who've been struggling to keep up. Your better pill to swallow is to check out the Bradley Reach world-class pediatric psychiatric care program that's being delivered virtually by the Bradley Hospital team. This partnership opportunity is helping solve the challenge of a lack of psychiatrists, psychologists, and other key clinical providers, and assemble a team and solution that will bring relief to you and your community and patients. Thanks for joining me, your host, Dr. Nick, on this week's edition of Healthcare Upside Down. Until next week, keep solving the business of healthcare as if your life depended on it, as one day soon, it will. That's all the time we have for today. You can find all of our episodes on your favorite listening platform by searching for Healthcare Now Radio. Also, check out our blog at ecgmc.com slash hud for summaries and commentary from each episode. Follow our show's social hashtag, HC Upside Down. And join us each week as we work to solve the business of healthcare for everyone.